You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. chapter 19, if you don't mind. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Uh, we, uh, we've got today and one more Sunday on this series we've been talking about the hereafter. So we've been talking about life beyond this life, what that looks like. Today, what we're going to talk about is the stewardship that God has invested in you and what He's given you and what He's expecting of you. And the next week, we're going to talk about a moment in time that Paul described where we, as Christ followers, are going to stand before Christ. Matter of fact, this parable kind of depicts what's going to happen in the future when we stand before Jesus and we give an account for the life that we've lived as believers. So we've got this week, we've got today, and we've got next Sunday, and then we're going to move on. We're going to move into First and Second Timothy. Now there's a reason why we're moving into those two chapters or into those two books. Uh, we have uh, coming soon, uh, we have a new set of bylaws. Now, that may not interest you a whole lot, but I'm, I'm very interested in it because what it does is it establishes what this church is going to be about. This church has got a long history of uh, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, but we've got to look out about five, ten years, and we've got to think about where does this church need to be in five to ten years? What's God calling us to do? And one of the things that became apparent is, is our bylaws were kind of over here and the way our church was operating was kind of over here, and that's not a, that's not a wise thing. So we've, we've had a team that's been working almost a year and a half on this, and we're 98% done. Um, so I want to teach through First and Second Timothy for two reasons. One, to kind of prepare us for what's going to be coming in that document so that you understand why it's written the way that it's written. And number two, that we understand what is required of us as the household of God. That's the, the terminology that Paul uses when writing that letter to Timothy, who's the pastor of Ephesus. How is the household of God supposed to operate? And secondly, what is the mission of the household of God? That's what we're going to talk about, and that's the reason that we're going to be doing that. Now, there's going to be plenty of opportunity for you when we get to that point as a member of this church to see those bylaws, ask questions about them, we're going to take our time with that because we want you to know what that's all about. Make no mistake about it. We in the leadership of this church, the ones who serve this church, we've been looking out five, ten years, and we've been thinking about, okay, what is God calling us to do? In relationship to all that's happening right now in our culture, all that is, listen, all that is, all that we're going to have to face as a church, don't think for a minute that we're going to get done when we get done with this pandemic. We've had two hurricanes, a pandemic. Your pastor's a little tired, but he's, he's okay. He's getting there, all right? He's, he's growing, trying to grow through all this just like you are. But don't think for a minute that once we get out of this pandemic that we're done. There's more coming. It may not be a virus, but there's more coming. And we as a church body, we've got to be prepared for that, to stand when we need to stand. So that's part of what we're going to be doing as we walk through First and Second Timothy. Today I want to look at this parable that Jesus taught. And it's, it's, a, it's a very familiar parable, as most parables are. And, and when we have a very familiar parable, oftentimes we can miss what's happening here. Let me also say, I want to say a welcome to all those watching online this morning. We are aware of the fact that we have people watching in 14 different states we also have people in uh, nine to ten different countries that are watching us every week now. And I never want to leave you out. I want to say thank you for being here and participating. I hope that you'll take the time to reach out to us, email us, let us know where you are, let us know, you know how God is, is moving in your heart, how we can serve you even at a distance. Uh, we would love to be able to do that. So if you're watching somewhere across the world this morning, we want to say that we love you. We're glad that you're here. Please reach out to us. We would love to connect with you. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. I want to read this entire parable first. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom 
and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus. And he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. But then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, or a hard man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And so the nobleman said to him, or the king said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow? Well, why then did you not put the money in, in the bank? And in my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Father in heaven, we recognize your word as being the authority. We recognize, Father, that your word is perfect. It has no errors whatsoever. It is the truth, and Father, it is your word to us. From Genesis to Revelation, we have all that we need. We don't need any new prophecies. We don't need any new words. All that we need, all that we have is right here. So, Father, I pray that as we walk through it this morning, we pray, Father, that you would be exalted and that our hearts would change from the inside out. Father, your word has as its goal, life change in us. So we ask the Holy Spirit to do that work in our hearts, whether it is for salvation, whether it is faithfulness, whether it is obedience, whatever it may be, have your will and have your way. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we began this series talking about that death is the result of the fall. And that every human being knit together in their mother's womb by God is created in God's image. And we talked about that, that God's image in us is what separates us from the rest of creation. That we have faculties, that we have attributes that are the mirror image of God Himself, that we have the ability to reason, we have the ability to create, we have, we have incredible blessings from God in that image by which we bring glory to Him, and not only that, we point back to Him in, in the way that we live as humans, that we are different than the rest of creation. We also learned that heaven is going to be an awesome, beautiful, incredible place, and quite frankly, those two sermons didn't do it justice at all. I didn't even come close. I just scratched the surface a little bit. But we also talked about that, that just as beautiful and awesome as heaven is going to be, hell, Hades, is going to be just as bad. And what I hope that, that we've been able to kind of begin to get our arms around through all of that is that the life you live right now, the choices that you make are so vitally important. I mean, if, if eternity is real, and I hope that you've been able to at least see that the Bible speaks of an eternity beyond this life. And, and quite frankly, we have a hard time understanding eternity. I mean, I mean, just think about this. We, we talked several weeks ago that, that, that Jesus is going to be the light of the world, the light of the city, that there's no longer going to be any night. So we're going to perpetually live in day forever and ever and ever. And you can throw a hundred more forevers on there, and you still haven't got to the essence of eternity. So eternity, our concept is like, like a drop of water in the ocean. That the ocean is vast and this one little drop represents our life here on earth. That it is so quick, so fast, is here today, gone tomorrow. Solomon described it as a vapor. 
like a fog. As a matter of fact, you're here this morning or watching online and you're thinking, man, how did I get here? How did all this time pass by? I was 18 yesterday and now I'm, I'm looking down the, the latter portion of my life and, and I'm thinking, how did this happen? I can remember back then thinking, wow, man, it's going to be a long time before I get to be 40 or 50 or 60 and, well, here I am. <laughs> how did that happen? It's because your life is a vapor. So if eternity is real, does that not even put more emphasis on the 50, 60, 70, 100 years that you've got here on this earth? If we've got all that time out in front of us and the choices that we make today determine what that eternity is going to look like, does that not put incredible weight on every minute, every second, every day, every dollar, every moment? You see, there are no days that are just a waste of time. You, we have a culture now that gets bored so easily, right? We've got to be constantly entertained, and, and we, we can't possibly ever be bored. And the fact is, is that every day that God has given us is an incredible gift to be used to the fullest extent for His glory and for the work that He's given us to do. Well, it's confession time for me. I have a couple of confessions I have to make. When God first called me in the ministry and I became a youth and children's pastor, uh, the church that called me was very gracious to call me because, quite honestly, I had zero experience. I had no clue what I was doing. Now, I know I've got some friends up in my hometown that watch the service every week, and I have to admit to you that, that when the church called me, I had nothing to bring. <laughs> I really didn't. And uh, I can remember what that felt like. I can remember when the church asked me to write up a resume in the hiring process. I had nothing to put on it other than the fact that God had called me to be a pastor. I wasn't even sure what my spiritual gifts were. I thought I had an idea, but I really didn't really, didn't really understand it. I had, I had no degree. I had no seminary training. I, I simply had God's call upon my life. So when I entered into that ministry, and I moved from 14 years of working in a plant in industry, industrial complex and going into the church, I didn't know what to do. So you know what I did? I looked at what every other student pastor was doing. And I saw what success they were having, so I just started copying what they were doing. So I would get the latest book, I would get the latest kit, I would get whatever Lifeway was saying, hey, use this and, and you'll have a, a, a powerful youth ministry. I, I was looking everywhere else except the gift that God had given me. I was trying to emulate that guy out there who had, you know, a couple hundred teenagers and just seemed to have it all together. I wanted, I wanted to be him. And instead, God is saying, no, I've made you to be you. So I would be jealous of those guys. I don't say that with any pride. I, I say it with great humility, knowing that I never realized it was a while before I began to realize this, that, that God had given me everything that I needed to do what He called me to do. You see, in the moment I put my faith in Jesus, which was 16, I had no idea that God was going to call me to ministry. I had no idea. And for you who have not put your faith in Jesus yet, let me, let me tell you what happens in the moment that you finally surrender your life. Let me tell you what happens in that single moment of time. If we're talking about if we're talking about this lifetime that is here today and gone tomorrow, if we're talking about the most important single event in your life, is when you come to that place where you realize that Jesus is, in fact, who He says He is, and that you're going to give up all other gods to follow Him. Let me tell you what happens in that moment. In that very single moment in time, the wrath of God turns away from you. The wrath that you deserve for all of your sin turned away. In that single moment in time, all the stuff that you got wrong and all the things that you've done wrong and all the things that you thought wrong, all of that is washed away, forgiven, never to be brought up again. In that single moment in time, the God of this universe adopts you into the family of God. You become a son or a daughter of the Most High in that single moment. And not only that, in that single moment, you are, giving the, you are given the fullness of the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. Get this. As a Christ follower, I have God 
in me. God who spoke and the earth came to be. That power lives in me and it lives in you. He also gave me a spiritual gift. One, maybe two, I think just one for me. And, and that was a gift from God and His good grace and His good mercy. And He's saying, take what I've given you and now use it to bring honor to me and to build my kingdom on earth. And every one of you who are Christ followers has exactly that. It may be a different gift. Some say there's 15. Some say there's about 10. We'll get to that in another time. But you've been given something to use the kingdom work. Second confession. First one was, I was looking to those guys rather than trusting God. Second thing was, is when all that stuff didn't work, and it didn't, you know what I began to do? Offer excuses. Well, they've got, they've got the worship band. Oh, they've got the nice facility. Oh, they've got the gymnasium. Oh, they've got, they've got the nice band. They've got the contemporary style this or the traditional that. They've got a bus ministry. They've got a van ministry. They've got a sports ministry. And it goes on and on and on. And you know what I began to do? When all of that failed, when I began to look past what God had wired me to do, and I looked at everyone else, when that failed and we knew that it would, God was telling me that it was going to fail. You know what I did? Well, they've got all that training. They've got a master's degree. They've got a PhD. They've got they live in Orange County, California. They've got all these resources. So what it became was a, a long list of ever-ending, never-ending excuses. Have I, have I described you this morning? Have I described you to the point that, well, I don't really have anything to offer. I can never do that ministry. Ben Franklin said this. He said, quote, He that is good at making excuses is seldom good at anything else. That describes me, the early part of my ministry. A few weeks ago, I told you that salvation is more than fire insurance. Certainly, escaping the place that I described the last two weeks is certainly important, right? That the gospel of Jesus Christ delivers you out from under God's wrath, so therefore you don't have to worry about going into a place of torment and being separated from Him forever. But Christian, hear me well. When you put your faith in Jesus, you were not just saved from hell. You were saved to something, to a work. You were saved to engage in the kingdom work. And it is not just the responsibility of the professional clergy. I, I use that in quotation marks because I don't consider myself professional clergy at all. It is not the responsibility of a paid staff person. It is the responsibility of every Christ follower to participate in the work that God has given. And not only that, you're going to be held accountable to that, which brings us to this parable. Jesus taught this parable for a very specific reason. Look at verse 11. They supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's why he's teaching this parable. So he's been walking with his disciples for about three years at this point. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus turned his attention to Jerusalem. It's a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. And from that point on, he's been making his journey to Jerusalem for the last time. And as he's traveling with his disciples, the disciples are constantly bickering and talking about what their role is going to be in that kingdom. Now, the way they understand the kingdom is different, different than the way Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom. You see, they think that when Jesus goes into Jerusalem this last time, that he, he's going to kick the Romans out. He, he's going to ascend the throne of David because he is the son of David. And he's going to work miracles and power. And I mean, Jesus has raised people from the dead. He's healed the blind. He's healed the lepers. If there's ever been a guy who could do what needs to be done and get the Jewish people out from under the Roman control, it's this guy. So the disciples have this very low view of what the kingdom of God is going to be. They're going to go into Jerusalem, and somehow, maybe miraculously, Jesus is going to take over. The Jews are going to be restored back to power, and life is going to be good. And if you're Peter, James, and John, who've been part of Jesus' inner circle for quite a while, you certainly think that you're going to have a nice, cushy position. In spite of the fact that Jesus told them, three times, well, it'll be three times by you get to this point in the text that I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to resurrect. 
That's how the kingdom is going to come about. They wouldn't have any part of that. All they could focus on is what they were going to get from it. And Jesus is trying to teach them that no, there's going to be a delay in what they understand about the kingdom. That's the point of this parable. The point of this parable is to teach the disciples specifically that that Jesus is going to die, He's going to resurrect, but He's also going to ascend back to the Father, and He's going to come back. And in that time period in between, there is responsibilities that they're going to have and that you're going to hold account, be held accountable to those responsibilities. Notice what he says. He says, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. This nobleman is none other than Jesus himself. So the nobleman is Jesus in the parable. And the nobleman is going to go far away, and he's going to receive a kingdom, and then he's going to come back as the king. Jesus is going to die on a cross. He's going to be placed in a borrowed tomb. He's going to resurrect, and at that point, point of resurrection, all authority has been put under his feet. In other words, Jesus has said he's a king, but he proves that he's a king when he overcomes death, hell, and the grave. And he's going to ascend back to the Father. So he's going to go away. He has received a kingdom. Jesus is that king, and that king is going to return. This nobleman goes to no far country. And before he goes, he calls ten of his servants. These servants are his disciples, his followers, at least some of them are. And he gives them 10 minas. A mina was about the equal of about three months' wages. So in your context, figure up what you make in three months. Contextually, that's about what a mina was in Jesus' day. So he brings together 10 of his servants. Now, we're only going to learn about three out of the 10. We don't know what happens with the other seven. It doesn't matter. But of these three servants, especially, they're going to be focused on, each of the 10 servants get one mina, which is basically three months' salary in advance from this nobleman. And he says to them in verse 13, he says, engage in business until I come. So there is the expectation that what they've been given is not theirs. They are not to take ownership of it. They are to use it while the king is gone, while the nobleman is gone, and when he returns, he is going to hold them all accountable for what they've been given. In the middle of this, verse 14, it talks about some citizens. These citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over this. Well, this is none other than Israel. That Israel, as Jesus gets more prominent, as his power and his testimony becomes well known, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have a deep, deep hatred for Jesus. And they determine that there is no way that this guy is Messiah. You know why that is? Because their idea of a Messiah is one that would never, ever, ever call a tax collector. Hang out with the lowest of the low people. No Messiah would ever touch a leper. No Messiah would ever have dinner in a household full of sinners. The Messiah that the Pharisees and the Jewish people were expecting couldn't be more different than the Messiah that God has sent. And that contrast between the two is going to put Jesus in a position to where He's going to be tried and He's going to be hung on a cross even though He did nothing wrong. They hated Him. Verse 15. When He returned, having received the kingdom, so this period of time where these gifts have been given to be used for the kingdom work also includes us. We are in this parable because Jesus has died, He's resurrected, He's ascended back to the Father, and we've already talked about that He's coming back. So we are those servants that He's talking about in this parable. We can include the church age, us, right here in Lumberton, 2021, and that you being born again, you've been given a gift. And Jesus is coming back. Notice what happens when the king comes back. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. There is the expectation that they've been diligent. There's the expectation that because they're a servant, they are to be serving that as a servant, they've been given something and to do business while he's gone. So imagine this in your mind's eye. The king comes in in all of his royal power and authority. 
And he's sitting before these 10 people that are lined up. Again, the other seven we don't know anything about, and it doesn't matter. And these 10 are lined up, each one having received exactly the same amount. All with the same expectation to honor their master and what they've been given. So the first one steps forward. And the king says, well, hey, what did you do with what I gave you? And this guy says in verse, uh, look at verse 15, um, actually verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. So he took what the king had gave him, turned it into 10 more. Notice what the king says. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Now, to the servant, three months' wages given to him is a pretty big deal, right? But he also understands that those wages were not to be his. The king made it very clear that I'm going to give this to you. Now, you do business while I'm gone. And this particular servant takes what was given to him, and he multiplies it times 10. And he comes back to the king and says, here's what I've done with what you've given. And the king says, well done. Now that you've been faithful over a small thing, now that you've been faithful over one single thing, now I'm going to give you authority over ten cities. The guy in line behind him, second guy in line, steps forward. The king says, well, how'd you do? Well, king, you gave me this mina. I went out and I turned it into five more. Notice that the commendation is exactly the same. You were faithful over a little thing. Now I'm going to give you authority over five cities. Good job. I would imagine the third guy in line is getting a little anxious at this point. If I was the third guy in line, I'd be a little anxious. I would be trying to formulate in my head what I'm going to say to the king because I've got two guys in front of me who've done pretty good. And I've been given exactly the same thing. So I'm going to be, as the third guy in line, I'm going to be coming up with a really, really good excuse on why I have done nothing. Third guy walks up. King says, all right, how'd you do? Well, I'm glad you asked. I took your mina, three months' wages, and wrapped them up in a handkerchief, and I stuffed them in the bottom of my chest of drawers. And I knew you to be a hard man, it says here. And I was afraid of you. Because I've noticed you, you reap where you don't sow. In other words, you're taking things that aren't yours, that, don't, that you don't deserve. And, and I've noticed that because you're a hard man and that I was afraid of you, I was afraid to take a risk with, with what you had given me. I, I was afraid to do anything with it because you're a hard man. And I didn't want this to turn out bad. So I stuffed it in the bottom of my chest of drawers, and, well, here it is. And then the master says this, I'm going to condemn you with your own words. You see, the king listens to what the servant has to say, and there's a stark realization that comes, becomes very obvious at this moment, that there is a deep heart problem with this third servant towards the king. There's something wrong with the heart. And, and the king says, I hear what you've said, but wait a minute. Logically, that doesn't work. For example, he says, if you knew that I was a hard man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Now, this is not the king admitting to the reality that he's a hard man. He's just taking the words that this guy said, and he's going to unpack that a little bit. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? that I could have at least collected a little bit of interest. If you knew I was a hard man, if you, if you thought for a moment that I was going to come down on you, couldn't you have done the, at least the very least with what I gave you, put it in the bank, and at least you'd have had something to put here and, and to turn back in, but yet you didn't do that. And that indicates there's something wrong. When you contrast the first two servants with the third, you find out that there's something different about the hearts of the first two servants versus the third. Forget about the fact that that one got 10 and one brought in five, and one got 10 cities and one got five cities. Put that aside for a moment. The fact of the matter is, those first two servants, their heart was different towards the master. The third servant had no increase. He's offering excuses. 
And he says to the master, uh, you're not fair. You're not trustworthy. I was afraid of you. So therefore, here, take back what you got. Verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. Now, apparently in Jesus' day through this parable, we see the same issue we've got today culturally. Well, that's not fair. Well, the people said, and they said to him, Lord, he's got ten. The thing they failed to understand is, is no, they don't have ten. The, the nobleman has ten. The king has ten. Not the servants. What the servants have is a direct response of what the king gave them. They've got nothing. And it's out of the good grace of the king that he gives the servant with ten. One more because he says right here, hey, the one to everyone who has, more will be given. Did you know it's up to the king to decide? The king who owns it all, he gets to decide. He gets to decide which gift you have. He gives you the ability to, to live out what he's called you to live out. That's all in the king's hands. Everything you own, everything, the, the car sitting in the parking lot, the clothes you've got on your back, the food you've got in your cabinet at home, that's not yours. God's provided it to you out of his good grace. He says here, that this servant is wicked. He's a wicked servant. And then for these citizens who didn't want to be under the reign of this king, who I told you were, was representing Israel, get this, there's no difference between these citizens who hate the, hate the king than this third servant. The only difference is, is the third servant has some kind of association with the king. But these citizens who hate the king do not want to be under his reign. There is no difference between that third servant and those citizens who despise this king. You know why? Because the end result is, is that they both care nothing for the king. The only difference is, is the ones who are citizens have vocalized it. They said, we don't like this king, and we're going to do everything we can to keep from being under his reign. The servant was in the household. He was playing the role. He was there as a servant, but in reality, his heart was no different than the citizens. He had no love for this king whatsoever. His heart was cold toward the king, and even when he looked at the king, he thought of the king as being someone who was unfair, unjust, and undeserving. The citizens felt the same way. This third servant wasted what was given to him. Well, you would say, well, he gave it back. Yeah, but he did nothing with it. The king said, do business while I'm gone. Here's something to do business with. It's not yours, it's mine. When I come back, I'm going to hold you accountable. They knew exactly what they were signing up for. This guy decided to waste it. Now, we don't know. Was he lazy? We don't, did he just, was he preoccupied? I don't know. I just know that when it came time, to balance the accounts, he had zero. One of the things that has bothered me down through the years in ministry is people that come to faith in Christ have tremendous potential. And let me just say this, every follower of Jesus has tremendous potential. It's not as though those who are called to professional ministry have some greater potential. No, our calling is just different. But what God has given you and the gift that He's given you is just as vital and just as important to the body of Christ as to the preachers, to the staff, the deacons, and whatever role you want to name. It's all vitally important. But here's the thing. Oh, I've seen a lot of waste down through the years. Just these past few months, I have been set on my heels by something that came out in the news that really, really has bothered me. And honestly, folks, I'm still wrestling with it. And it hurt me deeply. A guy's ministry that I've followed for years. Books that I've read, videos that I've watched. Everything that I, that I saw about this man and his ministry was that, man, if there's ever been a guy that's taken a gift and turned it into ten, it's this guy. Ravi Zacharias, a great apologist, a guy who, who was going on to all kinds of college campuses, Berkeley of all places, 
would go onto those campuses and defend the gospel. He, he would even he would open the floor for questions, and he would get questions from all. There he was he was hated and cussed out. I saw it many times on video, and and this wrote, guy wrote many books on how to defend the Christian faith against Islam and against everything else. And I read many of those books, only to find out a couple of months ago after he passed away that this guy has some serious heart issues. Well, just this past week, the full report came out. This guy was a sexual predator. He was one man on the stage and another man behind the scenes. He was grooming young women for his own personal pleasure. And from what I can tell, is guilty of rape. I want you to know that it has really bothered me. And we, we, we've, had, we've had a series of this stuff going on, right? We've had a series of, of leaders who were one thing out on the stage, but a different thing behind the scenes. And I want you to know every time that stuff hits the newspapers and every time it hits the websites, it does the whole body of Christ great damage. And on the one hand, I get angry, but on the other hand, I'm broken. And I can look to everyone watching and everyone in this building, what that guy was doing was demonic, ungodly, and I'm having a hard time reconciling in my mind the guy I saw on stage and what has come out about that guy in behind the scenes. Here's the point I really got to get across here. It is possible for you to not only waste what God has given you, but in the process of wasting it, actually bring damage to the body of Christ. So when we name the name of Jesus and we say that we are a Christ follower, there is responsibility that goes along with that. There is a witness that is connected to that, and the world is watching. And please don't give them another reason to, date the, to, to doubt the gospel because you claimed one thing and lived something completely different. This third servant was exactly that. And quite frankly, his stewardship, or lack thereof, revealed something about his heart. That's the first thing I want you to see as we kind of wrap this up. Some things to take away from this parable. The first thing I want you to see is faithful stewardship is the proof of a right relationship. You say you've been born again. You say that you've come from death into life. Well, what does your stewardship say about that change? If, if God has given you all of this and He's called you out of that darkness and He redeemed you, adopted you, justified you, gave you the Holy Spirit, can we all just agree that that's going to result in, in a changed life, right? I'm not saying perfect. I'm not saying that you're not going to make a mistake. Yes, you're, there's going to be mistakes that you make, but you repent of those mistakes and you move on and you grow through them. But you don't live a double life. You don't live one thing in public and something else behind the scenes. And your stewardship reveals much about your heart. First two servants, they were devoted to the king. They served diligently even in his absence. While he's gone, they're serving. They multiply what they, they received. Our stewardship of the resources that God has given us, that gift that He's given you, the stewardship of that gift says something about your love for Jesus. If we're excusing it away, if we're making excuses, if we've stuck it somewhere in a closet and forgotten about it, if, if we make no reference to the fact that we are in fact Christ followers except when we step on this campus, that says something about your heart and your devotion to the King. Maybe it's cold. Maybe it's indifferent. Maybe, maybe you just don't care anymore. Understand that when we talk about spiritual gifts, I'm not talking about just serving on this campus. Lord, no, not just this campus. I'm talking about on your job. I'm talking about when you go to school. I'm talking about when you go to college. I'm talking about everywhere you, where you walk and live. That gift that you've been given is to be used in those settings to bring glory to God. The faithful stewardship over that gift tells us something about your relationship to God. Secondly, 
And man, this is so important. Association is not the same as devotion. You see this third servant. He was living in the nobleman's household. As a fact, as a matter of fact, when we begin the parable, he's referred to as a servant. The Greek word is doulos. Doulos means a, a bond service, someone who's given their life over to a master. So we start out with the idea that we've got ten servants. Three of the ones that are highlighted, they're called servants. But we don't find out to the end that actually only two of the three are actually servants. The third one is not. And here's the point. If you are associated with the church, associated with the denomination, associated with K-Love and can sing the songs, associated with a few verses you've learned down through the years, associated with Vacation Bible School, and you may be even associated with getting wet in a tank full of water called baptism. But listen, if all you've got is association and you don't have Jesus, you're just as lost as the rest of this world. Association is the same thing that we see in Matthew 7, one of the scariest texts in the New Testament. There's going to be all kinds of people who stand before Jesus and said, hey, I was associated with the Baptist. I was associated with Sunday school class. I have my membership there. And Jesus is going to look at him and says, you know what? Association doesn't move you into the kingdom. Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. Could it be that there are people here today and watching online that are merely, merely associated with us? Is it that they've got so much inoculation of religion that they have this idea in their head that just because I'm alongside Hyde Park, that somehow I've crossed from death into life? Could it be that one of Satan's tactics would be to get you to think that association is enough? Sir, he would. Do you think that, that Satan would say, look, you don't need to get so involved here. You don't, you don't need to get so deeply ingrained in this church. You can keep it at a distance. You can walk on the fringe. It doesn't really matter. As long as you're associated, you're okay. It's all lies. And your stewardship says a lot about whether you are a servant or not. Are you just hanging around with the church or are you part of the body of Christ? There's a big difference, huge difference. Billy Graham said 40 years ago that he believed that 80% of the evangelical church was lost. 40 years ago. I wonder if it's worse now. Third, third thing I want you to see is uncaring servants have nothing, gain nothing, and will receive nothing in the end. This servant, this third servant, when he received that mina, it was nothing to him. It's because he had no love for the master at all. So when he receives this, he cared nothing for it because he sticks it somewhere in a handkerchief and forgets about it. So therefore, if he cares nothing about it, does nothing with it, so he's gained nothing. So therefore, in the end, he receives nothing as a result. Now, next week, we're going to spend the whole time talking about what Paul said about rewards in heaven. Now, I know that in Christian circles, we often say, oh, let's don't talk about the rewards. Oh, let's, let's don't focus on that. We just need to serve Jesus because we love Jesus. True. But did you know that Paul was very, very much tuned into the reality that he was going to receive a crown? And he says in his writings that that's what motivated him to do what God had called him to do, that, do, that one day he was going to stand before Jesus and that Jesus was going to give him a reward? Did you know that Paul was motivated by that? If Paul was motivated, maybe we should be. The Bible says, Jesus himself said, store up in heaven treasures where neither moth nor rust corrupt. When you care and you serve, with the right motivation, and you take what God's given you to you and you multiply that in His kingdom work, then when we cross over there and we have to stand before Jesus, just as these servants stood before their master, wouldn't it be an awesome thing that Jesus hands you a reward? Can, can you imagine that? Can you imagine Jesus who's, who's died in your place, who's got the scars to show it, you're standing before Him, 
and you're giving, he's, he's talking about your life from the time you came to faith in Christ to the time you left this earth. About what you did with the resources you've been given, the Bibles you've been given, the Gospels that you've been given, the spiritual gift that you've been given, all the invitations that you've been given. Get, get this, every single time you attend church, you're given more. And guess what? You're not to be just a consumer of that. That we just consume it and we consume more and we consume more and we never give any of it out. That you're going to stand before Christ in every sermon, every invitation, every time you heard the gospel, every time the Holy Spirit prompted you to act and you didn't, Jesus is, Jesus is going to know all that. It was all investments that He made in you. And for the ones who love Him and the ones who serve Him and the ones who take seriously what's been invested in them, guess what? Jesus is going to say, well done. Come here, I've got this work over here for you to do. You see, your concept of heaven is sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, Lord help us. I hope if you've not seen anything else, I hope you're seeing that that's not the case. As I've said before, I don't like harp music. Don't have any on my phone, my playlist. Can't stand it. If you like harp music, fine. We're not going to be doing that for eternity, and thank God we're not. You're going to be serving in a way you're going to love. It's going to be worship to God. But get this, the what you're going to be doing there is going to be set in this little sliver of life, of faithfulness now that God has given you a mina and he says, go do business until I return. And how you do that business, how faithful you are with that is going to determine a whole lot of what eternity is going to look like. It doesn't determine whether you get into heaven or not. No, we're not talking about works-based salvation. We're talking about rewards for faithfulness. Those who invest only in this life have already received the reward. If, if you've stuffed that gift back, you've stuffed those resources back so you can live life the way you want to live it, then you've already got the applause of humanity. And that's all you're going to receive. Fourth and finally, God rewards in the next life based on faithfulness in this life. As you're responsible now, as you're faithful now, God takes notice of that. There's places where you're faithful with the gospel, faithful to do what God's called you to do, faithful to obedience. He knows. I think we're going to be shocked. I know I'm going to be shocked. When I stand before Jesus, just how many details He knows. See, we, we kind of serve in this life thinking, well, you know, you didn't really see that. Oh, He does. I think I'm going to be shocked at the details the motivations of my heart that no one else knew that I kept hidden. Whether they be good or poor, he's going to know them. And it's going to come up. Maybe, maybe we should live this life with the end in view. Maybe we should live this life with rewards in view. Maybe we should live our life as though we really believe eternity's coming. And that this little bit of life we've got now, that you were, you were born at a specific time, to a specific family, in a specific region of the world, why do you think that is? Because you have a job to do here. Adopted as a son or daughter into the family. You weren't, born, you weren't saved just from hell. You were saved to good works. That God has already laid out beforehand for you. Ephesians chapter 2. Isn't it time to walk in those? Isn't it time to be stewards of what Christ has invested in us? Isn't it time we stop wasting the time that we've got? Father in heaven, um, Father, I think what is appropriate at this time is, is some inventory, some self-inventory, some self-reflection. Father, Lord knows we all need that, including me. This fast-paced world we live in, the, the jobs that we have, the pressures of those jobs, the pressures of family life, we go day to day to day to day without, route, without even really thinking about our responsibility to the King and to the Kingdom. Father, for those who have never put their faith in You, Father, I, I, plea, I plead with them that they have no promise of tomorrow regardless of what the liar is telling them. 
Father, if anything, the pressure, the draw of the gospel is such that we must redeem the time. We must make every minute count. And Father, on the other side of putting their faith in you is the most glorious, wonderful life. It's not easy. But Father, it's the, most great, it's the greatest adventure any of us could ever go on, and that is walking hand in hand with you, empowered to do the work you've called us to do. There is no greater adventure than that. So Father, may they let go of whatever it is they're holding on to, and may they make this single moment in time count by expressing faith in you. Father, for every disciple here and all across the world, following Jesus is more than just showing up once a week. We've been given so much and we must give it away. Father, we are stewards, not owners. And when we stand before you, we will be found faithful in the most important work that any person could ever be given. That is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that you have commanded. There is no greater calling, and every disciple has been called to that work. Father, may we evaluate our life. May we, may we reflect on the stewardship that is ours. And Father, do we look more like those first two servants or are we more like the third servant? Father, reveal it to your people. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 